It's a real joy to be together and to sing together as a congregation. And always it's one of those things where unless you're a choir, the more the merrier. And even with choirs, the more the merrier. So it's a joy to be together and worship the Lord in singing this morning. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to James chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. <laughs> 25 through t- 27. Let's read aloud from the word of the Lord. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we come to your word this morning, it is my desire that the words that I speak would be faithful to your word, which is holy. And it is our desire as a congregation, Lord, that everything that goes on in our time together this morning would bring worship and glory to you. And we recognize that this only happens... When our hearts are focused upon you, we pay attention to what you desire to teach us, and we go forth with resolve to live out the lessons that we learn from your word. We ask that you would accomplish this transforming work in our hearts, because, Lord, it is not natural or normal for people to look at your word and to go forth and live it unless your Holy Spirit accomplishes a change in their hearts. And so we ask your Holy Spirit to work in each of our hearts that this change might begin if it has not yet begun, but continue if it has already begun in all of our hearts, that we might grow towards perfection and holiness. That perfection and holiness, which we read in your word, you desire of your people, that we might be prepared to spend eternity in your presence, worshiping and glorifying you. In Jesus' name, amen. How many times have you been rebuffed and discouraged in your hopes to share Christ with a friend by a friend giving you a lecture on, quote, hypocrites I have known who claimed they were Christians? All we have to do as Christians is run into this reaction from people who don't know Christ once or twice. And the importance of being genuine in our own personal faith is is impressed upon us very deeply. We realize when we run into people who are not interested or who say they are not interested in Christ because they have run into Christians who have not lived like Christians and said they were Christians, we realize that how we live doesn't just matter to us ourselves, but it makes a very great difference in having an influence on those around us. Because as you and I live, if people know that we are followers of Jesus Christ, and we tell people, I am a Christian, then they will watch our lives very carefully. And depending upon how we live, they will either turn towards Christ, or they will turn away from Him as they turn away from us and walk away. Now, you understand I'm not placing the full responsibility for what people do with Christ upon the heads of Christians. 
But the point is that we have to realize we have an influence on this process. And the sooner we realize it, and the more strongly it is impressed upon our hearts, then the more we will act in line with the way in which God desires for us to live. Now James is concerned to help us steer far away from hypocrisy and to turn us in the direction of true righteousness. We've been moving towards the culmination of this chapter for the last two weeks. And each week I've sort of wondered how I didn't get there. I think that kind of thing sometimes happens in in the adult Sunday school class too. But now we've arrived... And right here in these verses is a, is a direct addressing of the reality of hypocrisy among many who consider themselves believers. What is hypocrisy? It is made up of an exalted view of self. Our verses here begin with a cryptic remark, a short statement. If anyone considers himself, if anyone considers himself, <coughs> if you look at that phrase, you realize... <coughs> that there is a danger for us as Christians in how we think of or consider ourselves. Everybody walks around with a self-view. Everybody has a way in which they think of themselves. We're told in Scripture, do not think of yourself too highly. And this passage impresses that need upon us as well. The message throughout Scripture is that you and I are to consider others. How are we to consider others? We are to consider others better than we ourselves are. This isn't normal. Hypocrisy is based upon the exact opposite attitude. Because what happens with hypocrisy is it kills the attitude of humility. If you and I go around thinking others better than ourselves, then we will treat them better than we treat ourselves. And we will be in keeping with God's Word. But if you and I go around thinking that we are better than others, then that's where hypocrisy comes in. Now, oftentimes, we've looked at this passage before within the last two years. But as we look at this passage today, we look at this word religious we realize that there's a lot of baggage attached to the word religious. Many people do not like to use the word religion. But as we see it used in this context, we find that there's no problem, biblically speaking, in thinking ourselves religious people. That is, according to this passage, the way we are supposed to consider ourselves. Because what religion is, in its definition as we come to it from this passage, Religion is something that pleases God. So as you and I think of ourselves, we should think of ourselves as people who desire to please God and who are, who are religious people. But we should only think of ourselves that way if Scripture describes our lives. If you and I listen to Scripture and we seek to obey it because we love the Lord, then we should consider ourselves religious. But if we don't seek to obey it, we don't seek to listen to it, we don't seek to live by it, then by all means do not consider yourself religious. Because this is dishonoring to God and it brings trouble. (coughs) So what do you think about yourself? What do you think about yourself? 
Do you consider yourself a religious person? The thing that we get to as we look at this passage is that whatever you and I think about ourselves, the saying is, as I think, therefore I am. Whatever we think about ourselves is not what we are. Because in looking at this passage, we find out that it's what God thinks about us that we are. That is the reality. And yet we deal with the fact that we live in such a way that we do have views about ourselves, and there's no problem with this. I'm always interested in reports and statistics, and you know I'm frequently bringing something I've heard or read as a statistic. Well, I was interested to learn this past week the most recent report on the spiritual condition of our country. Done by Barna Research, it indicates that 7% of those in our country consider themselves described by the title evangelical. <clears throat> of that number, only 37... And it's interesting, when you throw these titles around, nobody ever bothers to describe what they mean. But the question that they ask when they ask people, do you consider yourself an evangelical? The next question is very telling. Because it tells us what the world considers an evangelical to be. The next question was, if you consider yourself an evangelical, do you believe that the Bible is completely accurate? And this is the way the question is put together. And of the number who consider themselves evangelical, only 37 or 38 percent believe that the Bible is completely accurate. Now, I think the discouraging trend in this is that both of these statistics are down within the last few years. There's a lesser percentage of people who consider themselves evangelical. There's a lesser percentage of those who consider themselves to be described by that who truly believe that the Bible is accurate. <clears throat> it wasn't so long ago that those who considered themselves evangelicals understood the definition to include a firm belief in the authority and the accuracy of Scripture. But now we ask ourselves, what's in a name? What does evangelical mean? Well, let's go back a little further than that. What does Christian mean? What's in a name? According to James, there is a lot in a name. <clears throat> if our statements do not match our actions, then there is a fundamental problem, a contradiction. And according to what he tells us here and throughout the book of James, actions and attitudes tell the truth even more so than the words that we speak about ourselves. <clears throat> what we find as we read in our verses is that hypocrisy is frequently combined with excessive talk. <clears throat> excessive talk. Now as I was thinking about how to put these words together... I was thinking, what do you say? People who talk too much? No, it doesn't say people who talk too much. It says the people who are true believers must have a tight rein on their tongue. Does that mean you're not allowed to speak more than 50 words in an hour? No, it says nothing about the amount of talk. <clears throat> the point is that what is being referred to here is talk that is unnecessary. 
Now, that might mean you're talking too much, so much that you're jabbering. Or at the same time, and even more importantly, it would mean that you're saying the wrong things to the wrong people at the wrong time. If there's one thing that's impressed upon my heart more and more as I live, it's the fact that my tongue gets away with me much too much of the time. Now, when I was younger, I didn't think a whole lot about this. And I thought, there's really no problem. But the more I live, the more I realize, did the question that I need to ask myself is, did I need to say that? Did I need to say that? Now, there's some people who I am friends with in this church and outside this church who have helped me to realize that in that respect. But it's a question that each one of us needs to ask ourselves because we realize from coming to this passage that talk can ruin your whole walk. Talk can be the disqualifier. And so oftentimes people will ask me, is it right to say that or not? Is it right to tell me this or to tell you that or to tell someone else? I don't know. I'm trying to deal with that myself. Don't ask me about that. You've got to figure that out. Is it right to say that? Is it wrong to say that? There's no strict definition in Scripture as to what you can say and what you can't say. But there are some pretty broad guidelines. And one of them here is that you and I, if, we, if our talk is to match our walk, in other words, if we call ourselves Christians and we truly walk as Christians, we have got to learn to keep our mouths shut. Now, again, that doesn't mean don't say anything. <laughs> A lot of people would have, have a head start on us if it meant don't say anything. Maybe they do. Those people who are introverts have a head start on those of us who are extroverts. And so they're one step up already. That's not what it means. <laughs> it's easy for me to say that's not what it means. <laughs> but the point is, if we are going to fit the qualification, we call ourselves Christians, then we must know how to keep our mouths shut. <clears throat> what is it about excessive talk that so frequently goes with the hypocritical life? <clears throat> well, I think there's a tie to verse 25 here, <clears throat> which is this. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom... And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. There's an emphasis here on the perfect law that gives freedom. What is involved in hypocrisy is man's law, which constricts and binds people, not the perfect law that gives freedom. When hypocrisy is involved, there is an establishment of man-made rules, which bind people up so tight that they can't possibly get away. That is not a law that gives freedom. That is a law that gives bondage. And I think the best way for us to understand how this passage fits in the context of all of Scripture and how it applies today is to look at hypocrisy as it is described and exemplified in the Gospels. Who are the hypocrites of the Gospels? Ah, it's a word that today is synonymous. It means essentially the same thing as hypocrite. You can use this word instead of the word hypocrite. 
Pharisee. Oh, you're a Pharisee. That's a Pharisaical way of acting. Pharisee now means hypocrite. Because the Pharisees in Scripture, in the New Testament times, were the ones who came up against Jesus time and time again. (coughs) And they said and proclaimed in every possible way, we are holy. And as a matter of fact, we're holier than thou. There was a problem there, though. They talked a lot, but their lives did not match true holiness or righteousness. What what does talk in hypocrisy involve? It frequently involves lifting yourself up, and it equally as frequently involves putting others down. As I was talking with Sandy the other day, I caught myself thinking to myself, what am I saying this for? Am I wanting to put someone else down? Does it really make me feel better if I put someone else down? It's when we are in quiet, able to talk with our confidential friends, our spouses, our closest friends, that frequently we find out how closely we are described by someone who keeps a tight rein on his tongue. Do we say things that are wrong? Or have we learned not to hurt other people by keeping a rein on our tongue and how to honor God? We see that Jesus confronted the Pharisees time and time again. And we see that they spoke out of turn. Here are some of the ways in which they refused to keep a tight rein on their tongue. They criticized Jesus. In essence, saying to Jesus, look at your disciples. They're a disgrace. You're doing a terrible job of keeping them in line and walking them towards holiness. They criticized the disciples, for instance, for many numerous infractions of man-made laws. One of them that sticks out in my mind is as they were walking through a grain field on a Sunday and the disciples were pulling off heads of grain and eating them. The Pharisees felt free to criticize that breaking of man-made Sabbath law. They criticized the people who were involved in the triumphal entry, saying to Jesus, Make them be quiet. Make them be quiet. Now, we think about saying things like that, and they give us a nasty reaction. But they should give us a nasty reaction. They should make us recoil from them. Because the tongue is the most damaging tool in the world. And we find that theme emphasized throughout the book of James. We also find them criticizing Jesus because he dared to heal people on the Sabbath. Now, this is the example of hypocrites in action with their tongues flapping. In all these things the Pharisees were saying to Jesus and to his disciples and to all the people, we are the models of holiness. Look at us. Don't be looking at Jesus. Don't be looking around you at other people's. But if you want to know how to live, you had better look at me. And we find not only that they were exalting themselves, but the way in which they did this was they yanking down other people. Ah! You stink. You're not doing a good job. Terrible. You can't do that. 
God's not pleased by that. And so as they yanked other people down, they perceived themselves to be rising. And what did they use to do this? Strictly and entirely their tongues. Think about the Gospels. Jesus fought with people, the, the Pharisees being the religious leaders, these are the people he fought with. He fought with them throughout the Gospels. Did they ever use their fists? Finally it came to that. But the reason it came to that was because the tongues were the weapons of first choice. <clears throat> Regardless of their high opinion of themselves, <clears throat> the Pharisees were in the same position of all who follow the hypocrite's path. And this is the position. It's a position of self-deception. <clears throat> if anyone considers himself religious and yet he does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. Now, for people who consider themselves to be high and holy, even the thought that they are deceiving themselves would be abhorrent. Me, deceiving myself? No way! I'm just what I think myself to be. I'm righteous and I'm holy. I'm the best there is. Are you even suggesting that I could be wrong? Never. We joke about that in our marriages. <laughs> I'm never wrong. But the reason behind that is because people who are hypocrites hate to think that they're wrong. There's a terrible thought that they might be wrong. And I'll give you a test. <clears throat> think about that the next time you get into discussion with a person who matters to you most. And you get in a disagreement. Or with someone who is very important to you. You get into that disagreement. Are you upset at the possibility of being wrong? Are you upset at, being, at the possibility of being wrong? Self-deception is the result of talking too much <clears throat> so that the life does not follow God's model. <clears throat> These people have pulled the wool over their very own eyes. They've said it so long, you've heard it expressed. They've said it so long, they've come to believe it. They've said it so long, they've come to believe it. <clears throat> Few things are sadder than to see people who are deceived in their own minds. <clears throat> but if there's anything that's worse than seeing people who are self-deceived, it's the next thing that is described as the result of these people's lives. Their religion is worthless. Their religion is worthless. In other words, everything they've put together, everything they've done in order, they say, to please God, in order to live in such a way that people are blessed, everything they've put together is worthless. Because their lives <clears throat> do not match what God truly wants. <clears throat> People who are self-deceived do not benefit themselves and they do not benefit others. You think of the Pharisees in the New Testament and we get a grim picture. Because we get a picture of men who were constantly walking around putting people down. And that's the example that we find in Scripture. We find them to be miserable people. And I don't mean miserable from us looking at them, but they were full of misery themselves. How could you help but be miserable if all you spent your time doing was walking around trying to find ways in which other people broke laws and then criticize them about it? I find when I'm critical and get into one of those ruts, I get miserable too. 
It's a natural thing to happen, and it's a good thing that it happens. <clears throat> but not only do these people not benefit themselves, what good do we see the Pharisees doing anybody else in the Gospels? Nothing. What were they doing? Their religion was made up of being holy. But what they were trying to do was to pre prevent people from praising God, going back to the examples, the triumphal entry. Shut them up! Don't let them praise God! You can't do that here! What else were they doing? They were trying to prevent people from being healed. I mean, the whole thing is ludicrous. You look at them, and you realize just what it means to have religion that is worthless. What a depressing thought. You think you're going around living in such a way that people are being blessed. And everybody else looks at you and says, Man, I don't want to live like that person. I don't want to be around that person because all that person does stinks. The Pharisees were constantly cursing people and they were constantly preventing people from getting God's blessings. <laughs> that is a terrible picture. <clears throat> now we come to the last part of this chapter. <clears throat> and it's a description of true religion. The first thing we find about true religion is that true religion is not defined by man. That was the problem the Pharisees have. That is the problem of hypocrites of all time. True religion, we have to realize, is not defined by man. It's not defined by yours or my list saying, if you do the following things, then you're on the right path. And if you ignore the following things or fail, do not do the wrong things, then you're on the right path. It's defined by God. And we find God's law before us in Scripture. And so if you and I have a desire to know what true religion is, or to point people to true religion, religion being in the good sense, what God desires, then what we will do is point them to God's Word, and we will point them away from our words. And say, you can listen to me only as long as I am faithful to what you find in Scripture. But when it goes beyond that, you just say, turn him off, shut him off. Don't listen anymore, pay no attention. <clears throat> we have to realize that true religion is not defined by man or man's laws. <clears throat> we find the Pharisees so guilty of this, and we find that that is the reason why church is the place where there is greatest danger, being in the institutional church, where there is the greatest danger of coming up with false religion. Because people have a tendency to want to do or to say they want to do what God wants. And then they go about it by making their own laws to tell other people specifically what God wants. The Pharisees did that and they got way out of hand. <clears throat> True religion is defined by God and it mimics Christ's life. <clears throat> it imitates Christ. Now we don't find that specifically told to us in this passage. <clears throat> But we find that true religion is defined by God because it says religion that God our Father accepts is pure and flawless. In other words, we're to be concerned with what He accepts, not with what man accepts. Now that's a, that's a good point for us to realize so that we do not encourage other people to follow our laws. But it's also a good point to realize that we are not bound to follow other people's laws. If someone comes to us and says, no, I wouldn't do that. That's not right for you to do. And you cannot find any scriptural basis for that. And in prayer and consideration, then don't worry about it. 
You're not bound by what that person told you. You're bound by what God accepts as true and holy. We see throughout the Gospels and throughout the rest of Scripture that we are pointed to Christ's life. We are to live as He did. We are to walk as He did. (coughs) And how did He walk? He walked by helping the helpless. This is the example we have before us. To look after orphans and widows in their distress, that's the first part. Christ's whole life was made up of helping the helpless. He helped those who couldn't see. He helped those who were possessed by demons. He helped those, you just think about it, and put the helpless people in the blanks and remember the ways in which he helped them. Christ's life was made up of helping the helpless. We think of the overall scope of his life and we realize that in the midst of these tiny little acts, in terms of the whole scope, in the tiny little acts in which he made the lepers clean and he fed the 5,000 who were hungry people and didn't have the money to go out and get food for all of them or the place in the community, helping the lame people walk, we see the overall scope is Christ had compassion on us. Not just us. The people throughout history (coughs) who were helpless, who had absolutely no possible way to make peace with God. And because there was no other way, there was no hope for help in any other way, Christ's decision was to say, I will help. I will help. We are told in this passage that if we are involved in true religion, what we are involved in is having mercy upon people who need it. Now our passage is not specifically telling us that the only thing that religious people do is to look after orphans and widows when they're in difficulties. The reason our passage gives us this is because it contrasts so greatly with the life of a hypocrite. We're told about the Pharisees in the Gospels, that they devoured widows' homes. Why didn't they help the widows and the orphans? Because, friends, it didn't look good. Didn't add to the reputation. Didn't make them look powerful. If they helped the widows and the orphans, what did they get from that? There's no power to be had from widows and orphans. Ah. But in God's economy, there is all the power in the world in widows and orphans. If you look at widows and orphans throughout Scripture, you find that God's compassion is laid out for those people time and time and time again. You look at the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, the prophet, and the story of Elisha, and you find these men of God going to women who were in distress, particularly the story of the woman who was going to, to get her last water and gather her last sticks to make the last piece of bread for her son and her to eat before they died. And who shows up? God sends a messenger to provide for a widow and an orphan. So what we realize in our passage is that the reason widows and orphans are mentioned is not only because the hypocrites are not interested in these people, but because this is an example of those who need our compassion the most. Who are those people in our culture today? In looking at this passage before, one of the things that I think we must draw out of it is that in our culture today, as we look at what our culture is made up of, those people include 
people who are divorced and raising children. Those people, financially speaking, if you look at the statistics or anything else, the difficulties involved, you realize that those people have an urgent call upon our help. You look at, as well at people who live at, uh, alone, people who have physical difficulties. We are also drawn to the, to the absolute conclusion that those <clears throat> children who are unborn have an urgent cry upon our help in our culture because they are indeed people who need mercy from us who have the ability and the possibility of having a say. <clears throat> what are we to do <clears throat> for these people who have needs? What we are to do is to have mercy upon them. If we are God's children, then we will respond as He does. And that means seeing a need and saying, Oh, that poor person has need of help, and I can help. Now again, here's what you get in the man's laws. What should you do? Huh. That's an easy way out. I can't tell you what to do. But you and I, if we truly are God's children, will make it our business to figure out what, 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 what must be done. We don't end there. We end with this. <clears throat> we end with the fact that true religion is described by people being concerned with remaining pure from the pollution of the world. And so you and I, therefore, must combine with our acts of mercy the necessity of maintaining spiritual purity. <clears throat> For the past year, I've gotten James Dobson's cassette series which is a new branch of their work, and it's called Pastor to Pastor. They send out two cassettes a month, and <clears throat> they're generally very interesting, and they deal with many different issues. But the importance of adding purity from pollution with the world to acts of mercy was hit home in recent issue. They send out a little <clears throat> flyer or whatever explaining why this is an issue. And one of the recent ones... <clears throat> dealt with the issue of pornography. And the flyer that went with it explained that in their confidential surveys, they found that many pastors had a difficulty with this issue. And I was very distressed to read that because what it tells me and what I think it tells all of us is that you have to put the two together. You cannot just walk showing mercy to people and ignore how the world is coming into your home. And I mean the home of your very own heart and soul. You cannot do good to people and just say, I'm going to suck it all up, whatever the world has to give, and we're still okay. I'm doing what God wants, we're fine. Because when you see an issue like that, pornography among pastors, you realize this is a serious issue. You and I have to do whatever it takes to rid ourselves of whatever is polluting our hearts. Whatever is polluting our hearts must be removed. And so I encourage you as we close today, walk in mercy for the people around you. Now today that may mean the people in your very own home. It may mean that every day. It needs to mean and involve other people as well. People who need yours and my help. At the same time, never neglect the fact that the world is trying to walk into the home of your heart and take over and throw dirt around 
and crudded up so badly that you cannot hear the word of God and obey it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would impress the message of your word upon our hearts because your word has the power to make us people who live in godly ways. Help us to keep a tight rein upon our tongues, that we would build people up, those around us, that we would not destroy people, that we would not say those things that are unnecessary and are wrong to speak. Lord, we pray also that you would help us to act mercifully to those around us, to see and to have true compassion in our hearts. And we pray that you would keep us from pollution by the world. Give us the courage to give up whatever needs to be given up, to turn away from whatever needs to be turned away from, that we might walk in true holiness because you are the one who defines holiness and we want to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.